This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Scott Vincent. Scott and his family run a 2,900 hectare property, Wiragai, just outside of Narramine, where they run a mixed farming operation involving beef cattle and both broadacre and irrigated cropping. In today's episode, we learn that within Scott's production system, flexibility is the key, with a heavy emphasis placed on enabling the farm to capitalise on opportunities as they present themselves. Scott also reveals how he's adjusted his management over the last few seasons, as well as his passion for soil and for utilising ideas like chaff lining to make improvements in weed control. Local Land Services Cropping Officer Tim Bartamote caught up with Scott outside on the veranda at Wiragai to bring you this great chat. Well, welcome back everyone to the podcast. Here today we're with Scott Vincent out at Wiragai. How are you going today, Scott? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Tim, and yourself? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Um, can you just start off by just telling us a bit about where we are today and what you do here? So Wiragai is, is where we live, where our main operation heads off. There's four different properties adjoining between here and the other side of the Yumundri Road, so we're eight kilometres north of Narramine on the river, and I'm mainly winter cropping, sort of four and a half thousand acres, and also sort of 500 acres of cotton and run sort of about 180 Angus cows on our operation at the current stage. It's a very, very busy operation, plenty of mixed farming going on. Yeah, look, it is very, very busy, especially doing a winter and summer crop. You're harvesting one when you're planting the other and that makes it very, very busy all year round. takes a bit of juggling as far as workload goes and to keep organised enough for the next program. So can you tell me a little bit about the different soil types and the landscape around here? So here at Wiragai, we uh, have river alluvial soil along the river. We have four centre pivots of 50 hectares each and then we come off that alluvial stuff onto some red soil and so you've got sort of a mix of red soil through the middle and then you get further away from the river and you get into some blacker heavier clay type country. Then you go up over the rolling hills of shallower soil, not that suitable to cropping. We run our livestock enterprise through those hills and then we get back down the other side into some red carajong country that we're cropping again and get further out into some heavy clay, my old country that we're cropping as well, as well as some sodic soils that are quite hostile, but once you get the right management, they actually serve us pretty well. So a real range of different soil types, and obviously that's impacting what enterprises you're running across the business. So we're changing our enterprise according to the soil type and what's more profitable for us and what suits that soil type. Obviously, we've been zero till for 30 years. We run tram lines. We've been doing that for 20 years, you know, liming, gypsum. We are on a biology system as well. So, yeah, we're trying to reduce compaction on any of the soils. It's very, very important. 
hard to fit that in a cotton system as well. That makes it difficult that we haven't quite fine-tuned that without a massive capital outlay. So can you just draw that out a little bit further? What do you mean? Why is it so difficult in the cotton? The cotton's on metre rows and then that means the tractors have to run on two metre spacings. They can't run on three. And then on your dry land situation, you want three metre tram lines to run your headers on, but you can't because you're running a two metre system on in your cotton. So we need to look at going to 30-inch rows, 750 mil spacings to get us to be able to fit into a three-metre system. So, yeah, it's just a big capital outlay that we need to do. As far as going to 750 mil spacings, you know, we've got to change our whole cotton planter. And then we have a deep ripper that we need to run jewels on. It's just changing a lot of tyres all the time that we're struggling with. We're very, very conscious and not overcapitalising on our cotton equipment. Cotton is something that we grow when the water is available. We don't own any water. We actually buy all our water in. So if there's no money in buying water, we just don't buy water. So we run then our whole irrigation area becomes a dry land area. Very rarely we can generally buy water just to finish some crops off or something like that probably pays. Yeah, during the drought, three years, we didn't grow any cotton. What First year out of the drought, we didn't grow any cotton because we wanted to grow fava beans and rejuvenate our soils after the drought. And, you know, we could have four years out of cotton and we didn't have the massive capital costs that we need to be paying on equipment over that period of time. So it gives us a lot more flexibility and not as much pressure to actually plant cotton because we've got all these capital expenses out there and all the equipment that we need to be utilising. Yeah, right. So you're really responding to seasons as well as soil types and trying to get a system that fits a business that's functioning well. Yeah, look, we never lock anything in too far out. Once we start selling cotton, that locks us in. And cotton's probably our big profit driver when we're growing it. But no, we don't. We keep our flexibility around us and that means sometimes not using a certain chemistry in chemicals on crops just so we're not locking ourselves out of options. So a little bit more cost sometimes, but very small. But, you know, we will plan, but sometimes we divert another way. If something changes, the water price goes to $400 a tonne, we won't be growing cotton may still buy water just to finish off some wheat. So, yeah, we, we're very open to the value of commodities and the price of water. And then that decides what we're actually going to grow where in 12 months' time. We might, we're always forward selling cotton if the money's good enough and we think the water's priced well enough. We actually try and lock both in. And so how long has your family been here at Wirragoy? So this was bought 18 years ago. So we're originally um, from Tottenham in central New South Wales. My father was there and, you know, I was uh, very lucky to be given a start by my parents and it's one of the things that I am very, very grateful for and it's really part of getting a start. So, yeah, Dad bought a property in the 82 drought at Coonabarabran to put some breeding stock on. I left Ag College. I went up there and developed that place. It was only 1,200 acres. Sold that, bought another place, 3,200 acres. Did that up in four years, tripled its carrying capacity and sold it again. Doubled my money in four years. 
And then we actually moved closer to home and to parents for kids. So, yeah, we ended up buying at Narromine, which was Strathdoon. So that was 23 years ago. We actually bought that country for $216 an acre. Ah, those old prices, eh? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. So, yeah, it's, you know, like you look at it today, Tim, and you just can't believe that you could buy a country for that then. Two years later, we put West, added West Carinia and... And then we did a big leap. We actually subdivided a, a new house that we built and sold that off with a 1,000 acres. And when we bought this place here, Wiragai, which is the irrigation farm, so we sold off some, some other country with a really good home. And then we bought this place, sold off the house off it. Someone paid to remove it for us. Like picked it up and took it away. Took it away. Yes, and it was actually in this spot where we are now. That's why, we, hence, we have, you know, big old established trees. That was 18 years ago that we bought this place and since we've added another one across the road. Yeah, wow. So they all join up now, which has given us really good access right through, which is important. That's a really interesting story. Like, yeah, I think you're right in terms of getting a really good start, you know, whether that be through parents or investors or something like that really can help you gain momentum down the line, which it sounds like you've got done a really good job at doing, like from small beginnings to bigger ones now. Yeah, look, it's really important. I've seen a lot of my friends not get that opportunity and have to make it on their own, and they have made it on their own. And look, and I'm internally grateful for what my parents were able to do for me and give me a start. And, you know, my theory in life is you only get out of it what you put into it. So... A lot of hard work to get to where we are today. A lot of sleepless nights, a lot of stress and a lot of hours and long hours. Trying to juggle that with that family life work balance is one of the toughest things that you can do as a parent as well. Yeah, you can always sink more hours into work, but your kids don't stop growing when you're away. No, exactly. You only get one crack at your kids and that's really important to me to be there for them. Hence, they're all grown up now so (laughs) they don't stop no so scott i know you're a big advocate for improving soil health can you run us through a bit of why that is yeah tim we always try and be progressive and we'll take on new challenges that come about because we have an issue when we moved to narrowmine the first crop we grew here it had got taken out with just heat. We went away on a holiday. We came back a week later. We'd had a week at 30 degrees and I got it home to white crops. So everything, you know, the top half of every head had got taken out. And I was a believer, you talk to people locally that have been here for 30 years. They'll give you a little bit of head start of you don't try and change everything. So I got Cole Mullins out. He was an agronomist in at Dubbo. He'd been there for 40, 50 years. So I got coal out and um, anyway, we dug some backhoe pits and had a look at it. And, and look, you know, we bought one of the worst farms in the district, according to everyone. And Cole said, well, I think you need to sell it down to loose and forget about it for about four or five years, Scott. It's buggered. And we've got some paddocks over there at Strathdoon that have been for 26 years straight and they've been cropped for another 23 years since. And I can take you over there to a favourite bean crop that's, you know, chest high today. So anyway, Cole said, yeah, forget about it. Sow it down loose. And I said, well, I want to grow canola in it next year, Cole. And he goes, oh, good luck. 
So we proceeded into lime and gypsum and we grew a tonne of the acre of canola. And we've been zero till and tram lines were a massive thing for any of our country. So we started off doing everything right and, and then we retaining a lot of stubbles thought we were doing a really good job of, of fallow conservation. So we're storing a lot of moisture, which is really important, but we weren't getting the breakdown of that trash that we were leaving behind. And we were having two, three, even up to four years, you could still find a little bit of stubble from previous years on the ground. And we had a crop of barley here one year. It was after lupins. You know, we have on this paddock, it's actually lateral now. It's Phosphorus levels are 90. Come out of lupins, you know, this barley was going nowhere. And anyway, I had some friends that were using BioAg and they really liked it. So I gave the guys from BioAg a call to come and have a look. And they said, well, what are you going to do, Scott? And I said, well, I'll hit it with 150 kilos of urea. That'll get it going. He goes, yeah, fair enough. So they did some soil tests and came back and they said, well, it needs only 50 kilos of urea. But it needs it actually doesn't have enough phosphorus, a plant available phosphorus. I went, oh righto. So we hit it with six kilos of tech map. We hit it with a molybdenum and boron and one of their foliars, which is called Balance and Grow. And I said, Well, if you can fix this paddock, I'll look at you. And that paddock was losing tillers at the time, like it was going backwards fast, and we ended up doing seven tonne of the hectare of barley. So we got them to look at it, you know, over our soils and that's when we started the full bioag program and that was about 12 years ago. And they really changed our way we look at soils. We don't feel soils, we'll smell them. Smelling them will tell you how alive they are and hence we're trying to look after our fungus and biology and bacteria and they're the ones that are feeding the plants and it's just changed our concept of trying to understand how a plant's actually physically working. It's not it just taking phosphorus out of the soils. It's the plant giving the, the microbes sugars and in return they give them nutrients. Yeah, we've come a fair way. We've still got a lot to learn. I think a lot of our chemistry is getting very hard on, on our biology, on our soil. Hence, we've got weed problems and resistant problems. So we've had to go to harsher and harsher, heavier chemicals. I'm worried about what that's actually doing to our soils and our biology, you know, long term. I don't think it's doing it any good, Tim. So essentially you're trying to look at your soils not just in terms of physical characteristics or chemical characteristics, but incorporate biological characteristics and look at it holistically in that regard? Yes, and then trying to get that system, you know, running red hot so that you can get the best outcome off the... Off yeah, the look at, you know, and sometimes it's actually giving a bit. Coming out of the drought, we've got a full dam of water and we choose not to grow cotton and we grow faber beans instead. Financially, it's probably not the right decision, but for the soil health, it was definitely the right decision. We'd cut some hay off those pivots, things like that, um, and come out of a big crop in 17 of cotton. And so we just gave a bit back and you can't keep taking. You have to give back all the time. And, you know, if we, we do really well in a financial year, we'll put more back into our soils. We use agphos, which is a composted rock phosphate. 
and we're only sowing with 30 kilos of MAP. It's a lot more friendly to our ecology that's in the soil, the rock phosphate, and it's a long-term program that gives us more plant-available phosphorus down the track. Yeah, I guess there's um, something seen we have seen recently, I guess with nitrogen levels over the last couple of years, had a few big crops and then we're struggling to get good grain quality. So I guess there's definitely a lot we need to learn about our soils and how we best get you know, good outcomes, but at the same time not degrading the resource that we're using to produce those outcomes. Absolutely, and we've sort of been stuck on that urea heroin for the last three years. <laughs> I've heard it put that way before. <laughs> you know, we're just pumping so much into it, and we've had to because we pulled off three. Last year wasn't that big here because it was too wet, but the previous two years, you know, we averaged six and a half tonne for two years, and then last year we averaged five tonnes, so... 18 tonne to the hectare in three years. That's a lot of removal. And I think last year our crops are just starting to pick up some end that we lost down deep last year. Hopefully we're trying to leave this place in a lot better condition than, than we've found it and so far we're going okay. I wouldn't say we, we don't have all the answers yet, Tim. How do legumes, pulses fit into your system? We love favour beans. Wherever we can grow them, we can. They're incredible for our country and our soil. They're better than lime, gypsum and deep ripping. It's a very important part into our soil health and we've actually gone this year to zero canola, uh, first time ever. And, yeah, we're just trying to back off on that reliance of, of urea and think that our soils are getting a little bit tired and we're trying to give back and so we've got Majority of faba beans, uh, we've got field peas and we've got chickpeas as well. Yeah, now I've seen some good, there's been a, a few trials around the area lately on pulses and faba beans always seem to be yeah, working really hard. They do obviously take off a bit of N, I guess, in the grain, but they definitely put a fair bit back in. They actually leave nothing and I don't think they probably do because, you know, we're yielding pretty well in faba beans. You start talking four and a half tonne of faba beans at 20% protein. That's a lot of N that you're removing. So I don't think it's the nitrogen that they are, are doing. It's making a massive difference to our the amount of water that they can store. They've got a good taproot. I wouldn't say it's massive. It's a good taproot, leaving a lot of root hairs and things like that. So it's helping our country get deeper, I think, that the roots go down further. Um, we get a lot more plant available moisture. And, yeah, look, we we're only top dressing with a half amount of nitrogen after our pulse crops as opposed to canola. So, you know, they're telling us that there's nothing left there after our big removal, but we're certainly seeing the, the health of those plants so far in front. Yeah, no, I was actually listening to something the other day and there was the suggestion that maybe our pulses aren't putting in the nitrogen, like releasing it in big chunks that obviously we'd see out of a bag, but they're more gradual, more gradual release that's probably beneficial over the long term after. Because you always see that, you know, the difference when you have a, even a canola following a pulse or something. Yeah, exactly. And I agree with you, Tim. I think we need to um, keep our pulses in there to, you know, I'm sure those roots don't break down just in 12 months. So, yeah, not a big fan of chickpeas. We don't get enough ground cover. Uh, we only grow them when we have to. We hate fungicides with a passion here because, you know, one hand we're trying to do the best biology and on the other hand we're adding fungicides. 
to try and yeah, I've seen some data where you miss that one fungicide, and you know the five or six you got to do in chickpeas, and you know in a bad year, <laughs> yeah, just that yield just yeah, cool. oh, absolutely, you miss it, you'll pay. Yeah, it's it's that balancing act of trying to figure out what you can get minimum get away with. Um, we've had chickpeas here that we've put five, six fungicides on. It took us twelve months to repair that paddock. And the only thing that grow there was milk thistle. And milk thistle is actually a detoxin. Chickpeas in a year like this are fine. We put on one fungicide as a preventative and we won't have to go again by the looks of it. This year, faba beans have had one and that's all. And obviously field peas haven't had anything yet. So in the future, hopefully it has a nice fit for us that we don't have to use any fungicides in those. Now, I just wanted to move to your chaff lining that you've been doing for a little while now. Can you let the listeners know what that looks like? What is chaff lining? Chaff linings, you've got two parts to your header. You've got what comes out the back of the rotor, which is all your straw, and that still gets spread and still goes through the chopper, goes back out into the paddock. Then you have what comes off your sieves, which is your chaff, generally speaking, and that then is redirected in a separate stream and dropped into a windrow at the back of the header about 20 to 30 centimetre wide line of that material. So how did you get into that practice? It all stemmed. We learned a lot in the drought. I guess I keep referring back to it. We had two paddocks coming out of the drought. One was really bad with resistance, so we'd windrow burnt for three or four years in a row and did a fantastic job killing our weeds, our ryegrass issues, and to the point that we actually have hardly sprayed it since. But in the drought, in 16, we cut it off a beer can height, did all the right things for windrow burning, and we did six and a half tonne of the hectare, and we only were able to just burn the chaff lines. So we kept all the other straw going, oh, legend, you know, that's a great job. And then there was another paddock next to it that just got spread, with the header as normal. And after the drought, there was $1,850 a hectare difference in profit from where the windrow burning had happened to where it hadn't been windrow burnt for that previous four years. Yeah, right. That's significant. Massive. Absolutely massive. And it was only because it might have had a third or half as much trash ground cover as where the windrows were burnt. So we were going at, we need to learn from this. What can we do about it? And that's when we got into shaft lining. We couldn't afford the cost of a, a mill to go on the back of our header for 100 grand. We spent $5,000. We got one out of WA. We weren't reinventing the wheel. We figured out what the Western Australians had learned and we just implemented that. So what does this shaft line enable you to do? Well, example this year, we sprayed probably 800 hectares and we sprayed two, two and a half metres in 24 metres. So we only sprayed the chaff line in between our tram lines. So what it does is, one, it probably rots, you know, they say it's 70% of the actual ryegrass over time. You know, I'm thinking even if it's 50, that's fantastic. That's got rid of half of our ryegrass. We did see it after having a contractor that didn't have a chaff liner and our head of running a chaff liner side by side. The next year where he'd been, we had a blowout in ryegrass. Where our header had been, you'd say it was under control. So it's really giving us that option without the massive expense of a mill 
on the back of our header and we don't lose any horsepower and not using any extra fuel. We've got a camera on our header. We can watch our chaff line and we've blocked it up twice in what now, five years. And three of those being quite big. Yes, exactly. And you know when you're going to block it up. So you start watching the camera, but the rest of the time you're pretty much... It's been a great step, just like lime was and zero till was, tram lining was. For us, it's it's up there with all of those. And now, can you just tell me the story of how the chaff lines were a big benefit for you with your livestock enterprise in the drought? Yeah, so they really enjoy the chaff lines, especially in barley. The cows will nearly lick the ground. They'll eat everything they can off those chaff lines. So hence we're obviously putting those seeds through a cow. But we were able to keep our cows going through the drought on chaff lines. We did have some chaff lines on some irrigation that was barley two years previously and put the cows in on the irrigation for the first time for a long time. And, you know, they ate all the wheat chaff lines as well. And obviously, you know, we did harvest in 17, 18. So obviously the quality of that chaff was very, very high as well. And the same in the uh, favour beans as well. So we only fed for 12 months out of three years for our cows. So that really gave us a little bit of income through the dry, which was really, really important for us. And I think that diversity really helped us through the dry. We had a massive cotton crop in 17. That got us through 12, 18 months without putting our hand out for needing any more assistance. So to have the cattle to utilise those chaff lines, to utilise a bit of failed crops, to utilise a little bit of irrigation through the drought, we were still watering a little bit and still buying water. We paid $700 a megalitre for water and should have bought lots more of it. Yeah, I guess it was cheaper than feed at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was amazing, you know, because we'd actually made hay that year off all of our four pivots. So that made a big difference. You know, that still get generated some income. And we only added 30 mils through the pivot and produced two and a half tonne of barley hay. And that was all due because we had a... We irrigated the year before, so we still had a lot of ground cover. And on our lateral block where it come out of cotton and we had no ground cover, we didn't produce any hay at all or next to nothing. Whereas, you know, the ground cover on the pivots from the previous irrigated crop gave us enough ground cover, 30 mils of water, two and a half tonne. And then we added 10 mils to one pivot because we sucked the lateral channel out with a pump and put it through another pivot. It yields an extra tonne to the hectare from 10 mils of water. Yeah, right. So a bit of flexibility again, that, yeah. that word, with able to use water in different places and that sort of thing. Not necessarily irrigating the whole crop, but just topping up really helped you through that dry period. Yeah, again, diversity through our business. I think that it really helped us come out the other side in, in pretty good shape. That was really, really important. Righto, Scott. Well, thanks very much for having this chat with me today. It's been really interesting to hear about how your mixed farming operation has been is so flexible and you're able to adapt to different situations. So, yeah, appreciate you coming on. Righto. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. 
If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events, and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.